Welcome to One Quick Point, the strategy-focused podcast focused on the one key element communications and marketing professionals can use to be the critical link to their success. I'm your host, James Walker. Let's jump in. So we have a real treat for you today. We're going to be featuring Carla Renee Williams. She's a great friend of mine from a few years back. We actually met when I was getting my MBA at NYU Stern. And if you were to meet her, you would see the brilliance and the focus and the determination she has with whatever tasks that she's going to go attack. I've always known her to have a background in education, but also the legal profession as well. So when I heard about what she started, which really gave this idea for, for today's show, creating tangible impact, when I heard what she was starting in the midst of what was supposed to be a new and awesome year, but would turn out to be a pandemic, I, I was amazed at not only one, where she got the time, but two, the people that she gathered, and three, the focus, what she was going to do in terms of creating that impact. So I wanted to share that with you guys, as many of us work with corporate partners or others that are looking for ways to make impact and ways to execute on the CSR plan. And just on a personal note, Many of the One Quick Point podcasts are episodes that really dig into a specific topic, but this one is one where the topic is just as valuable as our conversation about Carla on the back end. So do make sure you're able to stick around to listen to it all. But thank you, and let's jump in. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carla Renee. I'm so happy you were able to carve out time to join us. I know it's a really hectic holiday season, so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. As this year comes to a close, I'm doing a few things. First, I'm taking a deep breath because it's almost over, but I still have my eye on 2020 in these last few days. This is one of those years you can't, you know, can't you watch your back. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to be doing that. But second, I've been reflecting a lot on what has happened. And one noted change in myself that I've seen between this year and last year is that I've been doing a lot more in terms of giving to orgs that I feel are helping those in need. So typically I've given to NAACP, Equal Justice Initiative, but as much as I know these groups work hard to defend our rights and create change, it sometimes feels hard to, for me to physically feel that, that impact, for it to be tangible. And I know firsthand this is a challenge that nearly every nonprofit, every business, everybody's trying to, to gather and, and figure out how they're going to surpass is how do we make our supporters feel like the impact that their time, energy, and donations generate? How do we make them feel it and feel like it's worth it and, and see that change such that they want to be involved more, give more, whatever the case might be. So in addition to those organizations, I turned to my church, Alfred Street Baptist Church, to support local food bank donation initiatives. And then I turned to your organization as it was getting started earlier in the year, Small Change Inc. So for those who aren't familiar, can you share what Small Change Inc. is and tell us how that organization came to be? So hashtag small change came to be almost one year ago today, and it was an anecdotal passion project, to say the least. Uh, I was asking people in my personal and professional networks what was causing them to give more or give less during the giving season, particularly on Giving Tuesdays. And many people were reporting back to me their discomfort with donating to organizations where they weren't completely sure where their funding was going to go. 
and they weren't completely sure what percentage of the money that they were donating was turning into overhead and administrative costs for the organizations they were giving to. And I thought to myself, well, what would happen if there was 0% overhead cost and 100% of what you gave went right to the to the thing that needed the help? And each person that I spoke to said, oh, I would happily give to an organization like that. If I thought that my dollar could go further, I would give that way. And just like that, in a two-week period, hashtag small change was born. Um, we are built as an organization that is entirely volunteer, that sets out once a month challenges, although we've been disrupted during COVID. Our goal is always to set out a challenge every 30 days where we solicit micro donations from people, anything from $2 to $1,000 or more, to be able to meet an unmet need somewhere around the state of New York. And at the end of that 30 days, as we're steadily announcing how much we've raised each day, each week, and through the month, we take 100% of that donated fund and turn it into in-kind giving to meet that need. So in January, we um, realized that many people were raising money for things like uh, hats and coats and gloves in the cold weather. And we realized that many um, government-run agencies did not have new underwear and socks for people who were in transitional housing. So we raised funding for that. And we were very successful in our first month. We donated approximately 450 sets of underwear and socks to people who were either homeless or challenged with different types of disabilities or mental health issues that were um, placing them inside of, of this transitional housing. In the second month, we raised funding for children's books and, and literacy to be able to build two small libraries in facilities for children who are either tangentially associated with domestic violence and abuse or for those who are awaiting adoption and foster care. And then in our next month, we raised funding for feminine hygiene care products uh, because domestic violence shelters in the state of New York uh, generally are not receiving the type of funding that they need to be able to provide feminine hygiene care products to women that are in those shelters. Those are things that fall outside of what they can use their, their benefits for. So we provided over 2,000 products to a local uh, domestic violence shelter in the Bronx. And every month we've done something similar to that in the hopes that we can make just a little bit of difference with the change that someone might spend on a hot dog or a coffee, um, or if they bought a drink for someone in a bar, realizing that, that that small change that they have makes a really big change in the life of someone else who just doesn't have it. And so with that, we were born. And here we are 12 months later, very, very proud of what we've accomplished and looking forward to an upcoming year of even more success. That's really great. And I remember us talking earlier in the year, just as you were starting this, to hear about some of the things, particularly um, when you were collecting the underwear and the socks. These are things that people don't, they don't naturally think of, but they're so needed. And it really does, it has an immediate impact when that happens, when that transaction happens. And for me, I wish more organizations, more companies that were donating to things thought about that. And maybe there can be a trend that, that we can start, you and I, we can go in on it together, <laughs> get people to start to think about 
okay, there's a lot that we can be doing to invest in the future, but there's some immediate needs that, that you can solve today. You can address them today, and maybe you don't completely kill that problem, but at minimum, you can help people get from here to there. And while that's happening, maybe you can think about how you build that into a more sustainable solution. So I really applaud the work that you've done with that thinking this year and looking forward to hearing what's to come. But on that point, what's the current challenge for the month of December? Oh, we're so excited. So we're not primarily a food service um, nonprofit. That's That was never our goal because there are so many organizations that help offset the needs of food insecurities across the country. And while there could always be more, we didn't want to be primarily associated with that. However, when COVID struck and we saw the nation enter into this recession, this pandemic, these you know, racial crises, um, so many people were losing their jobs or were losing the breadwinner in their home who was making sure that everyone ate. Um, there was a lot of loss. And in the beginning of the summer, even though we weren't completely sure how to do what we do, um, we started to raise money for um, food insecurity, to offset food insecurity in the Bronx. Actually, we started doing food insecurity projects in Brooklyn. Um, we are always looking to shift borough to borough to make sure that we're you know, spreading spreading the love as much as possible. And we raised a little bit over $5,000, understanding that if we partnered with a local grocer, that we could deliver approximately a week's worth of perishable foods to a household for $20 per, um, per delivery. And that that could combine with another organization that was providing things like masks and hand sanitizers and gloves and yet another organization that was also contributing non-perishable food items. And we, we partnered with one community at the end of that summer. We had such an incredible, overwhelming amount of support for that, that um, they were able to continue to deliver for many, many weeks, even after our initial, our initial contribution. Because that was so successful and met such a critical need at a time when people were so hungry, we did it again in August, and we stocked a Bronx-based food pantry at Bronx Community College um, for approximately, we believe, four to five months worth of food for students and their families and people in the 15th Congressional District, which is the poorest congressional district in the United States. So that was a really significant need to make sure that people had access to healthy, low sodium, low sugar, low salt foods, and that they could make that food stretch as far as, as possible. And as we saw the reception of that food, we realized that while many organizations were going to be collecting for turkeys for Thanksgiving and food baskets in December, that there was likely going to be that same kind of lull in January that many people experience because the giving season is, quote, over, unquote. And mm-hmm. so in December, small change, hashtag small change, is raising money once again to combat food insecurity in, um, in Manhattan. We are not sure whether we will be opening a food pantry or stocking an existing food pantry or if we'll be doing hand-to-hand food deliveries to members of the community yet. But we're in talks right now with a possible partner um, who has been recently displaced and in, in a, in a community agency that has recently lost its physical location. And we're hoping that we will be able to support the people in that community 
for at least a month, if not more than a month. Um, great success. In our first six days, we raised $2,000. Um, if we're able to continue that momentum and also find matching donors, then our, our hope would be to land somewhere in the $5,000 region for this month, um, which would be able to feed the population that we're looking at over at least a two-month period. And so Jan December of this year is all about making sure that people in Manhattan eat. That it's... See, that's the type of thing that I feel like so easily gets overlooked in so many organizations. They they think about such big dollars. I mean, you're talking, we're getting to 2000 and you're able to have an impact with that. 5000 is going to completely make this thing so, so much bigger in terms of the impact you have. And for a lot of the, the orgs out there, or profit or none, this is something they can totally do. So I guess... From an individual level, I know that we can go to the website, makesmallchange.org, and give. Yes. But how can businesses or other organizations support? Is it primarily donations that help, or are there other ways that you feel like they might be able to help be a part of this or future challenges? So there are three really big ways to help. And the first, um, before you even get into the three, the first huge step is a, is a shift in perspective as far as we're concerned. This isn't a passive activity. It's not about the organization getting it done and you know being able to sort of see the post on social media that says, we raised X amount of money in one day, congratulations, and that's it. This is a shift in understanding that if you had $2 extra that you might have bought a soda with at the bodega, that that will translate into something really significant for someone else. And once people start to realize, if I have the money to buy a Peloton bike for Christmas, I have $5 to give to make sure that someone eats. And once that mind sh my, that shift in, in perspective happens and someone can see immediately, within 45 days of the day they give, what the tangible impact of their gift is on the world around them, on the people that walk next to them on the street every day, then the three ways that they can participate really pop a lot more. The first is, of course, giving. Um, we always ask people to give, but we also understand that giving is not possible for everyone. Um, many professionals have incredibly um, overburdening of student loan debt. Many people have credit card debt. People have medical bills. They have all kinds of things that make their money so much tighter than it might look when you see how much they earn. Um, but most people can come up off 50 cents. And we ask that if they can give, they give whatever they have available to them in that month, understanding that every month we're going to come back and ask again. And, and every month might not be theirs, but we still want people to give if they can. The second part is sharing. So because this is a zero operations cost operation, everything that we're doing, the board is doing in-house. And we have friends of hashtag small change and they're helping too. We're creating things using Canva and other types of tools to be able to put out digital media assets as regularly as possible. And we ask that people grab those, take screen grabs, you know, use share it in whatever way is, is easiest for them to continue to spread the word that we exist. Um, the more people know, then the more they can share, and the more they share, the more sets of $2 we find at a time. And then the third part of that is 
is joining in. Um, the most fun for me is the experience of buying and giving. It's the experience of of actually going to Sam's Club and loading up four full industrial flats worth of moving carts to fill a, a passenger van full of food and to take that food to a location and to hand it over to someone who wasn't expecting to get what they got. It's the moment where you look someone in the face and they say at, at 40 years of age or 50 years of age, I have never owned new underwear. And to think of that in a first world context, to meet a person who says, I really appreciate having the opportunity to, to, to have something for myself that I didn't have before brings a lot of honor to our humanity. And so people are always welcome to join us in the processes of shopping for the things that we give, tagging the things that we give, and giving the things that we give. If someone is a part of an organization that wants to do something larger because we are so nimble and so flexible. At the beginning of a month or right before the beginning of a month, an organization can say to us, we're interested in doing a project in our local neighborhood. We're interested in doing a project with this particular group of people. And hashtag small chains board will design the project for you. We will handle through our social media and outreach actually asking for the, the micro donations. Um, we can work with the organization if they want to do something like t-shirts. We can help design and order those using our branding and logos with their branding and logos. And then we can work with their staff and teams to make sure that that's the group of people that are doing the purchasing and the giving because that that experience is such a profound and impactful one. And so um, if there's an organization that wants to work with us, we are we're so happy to do that. We're also excited about people who think, you know, I might not want to go outside during COVID and do all of this, but I do have additional extra money. So I'm happy to do a match. And um, all they have to do is reach out to us on any social media platform on the website, which has um, contact information or to me directly. And we set it up. And it's anything that someone can imagine we can make happen. And we're very, very proud of that. We're also starting to look for our second year at people who are located in other cities, very similar to a few other organizations that exist right now that handle food insecurity across the country. Our hope is that through some ambassadors and friends of hashtag small change, they might want to do isolated one month challenges in other cities so that they can also take advantage of um, this opportunity to, to make real positive change in, in the communities where they live and where they work and where they serve. And so we're, we're hoping to start to branch out a little bit more to create that opportunity. We would still be hosting it out of the state of New York, but they would be implementing it in other states. That all is amazing. And I, you know, I have to, I have to call out your repping for the home team. I, I really appreciate the, the local impact that you guys are creating in the state of New York, but it's awesome that you guys have figured out ways to set yourselves up and also connect with other individuals so that there's an opportunity for people to kind of replicate this model, because that's really the way I look at it. Because a lot of what I've worked with traditionally, when you're working with nonprofit orgs or other orgs that are trying to create this level of impact, it's more of a dedicated cause. So this is one thing for the foreseeable future. But I think the fact that you're able to move across different types of needs that you can meet is something that's important. Because 
we, we have a lot of orgs that are fitting with one thing. They have one specific mission and what they're trying to solve or what they're trying to serve. And in the, in the middle of all that or in the cracks of that, you have a lot of people who just never get served right? because their need just doesn't come up as high enough on the list. Right. And so I really appreciate the fact that you've tried to think through, okay, what are the different needs that people have? And, and true to your name, how can we make that small change but make sure that somebody's getting a little bit of help somewhere and there's a lot of different places where people need that. So that's all amazing to hear. And when I think about it and think about the sum of the things you've done, it's really amazing because when we first met, I didn't see it immediately, but you're a change maker. <laughs> it, just, it just, that's, that's the way to, to think about it because <laughs> I, I mean, I knew you were a phenomenal person. You're very smart, and I could see it your your thought process. But I didn't see that trend in what you're doing. And for the people listening, I didn't go through Carla Renee's resume, but it's it's a it's a hefty one. But for some quick highlights, I mean, you're a former district assistant district attorney, you're adjunct professor, former executive legal counsel, and deputy to the president at CUNY's Bronx Community College, and now you're the Dean for Workforce Development and Continuing Education at that same institution. People can look at it and you just see the titles, but these are all service positions. These are all high-impact positions in some way, shape, or form, and they require a lot of energy, and being the child of a teacher and somebody around the area of education, I'm also teaching now at GW, my alma mater, you got to pour a little bit of your soul into these roles in order to do them well. And I just wanted to ask you, do you see yourself as a change maker? And if you do, do you feel like you've been called to do it? I love that question. Oh, I love that question. I was, I was probably seven or eight and I come from a family of activists, um, of high professionals and incredibly smart and talented people who had a lot of expectations of me. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I was asked as a young person, what did I want to be when I grew up? I had the unexpected answer of, well, I'm a revolutionary, (laughs) which I guess is about as strange as answering that I plan on being a (laughs) T-Rex. I guess, you know, it, it doesn't really have borders around it. It's a very flexible concept But if you understand the history of revolutionaries, um, they they carry that nature through all of the different types of work that they do, whether they're in a government, whether they're teachers, whether they're religious figures. They could be pretty much anything, but they understand that it's it's la revolution that kind of gets them going in the morning. And and that's me. I never considered myself a change maker. I still don't. I consider myself to be incredibly average in the world of things. Um, but I, I feel like what I do have is a lot of heart and an incredible love for humankind. Just a, a very deep and, um, and tender part of who I am is focused on the deep and tender part of who other people around me are. Um, it, it is, it's hurtful to me that we are in a society that has so much and there are so many people who are missing things. It feels unacceptable to me. Um, the, I, I don't begrudge any person, their journey to earn and their journey to grow and amass. 
I think, you know, that's part of the American dream of capitalism. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also think that as a community, if you believe that being a citizen and being an American or, or any nationality is part of being a community of people, a tribe, then your tribe is only ever doing as well as the person who's doing the least well among us. And for me, hashtag small change was about taking the steps where I could to be able to say, let's level set a little bit. Um, If the issue for a person is that they have all the mental acuity necessary to be an incredible worker and a leader and their own change agent in their own right. But the problem is that they have housing insecurity, live in a car and have no clean clothes. Hashtag small change should be able to make sure that they have the clean clothes or, or Bronx community college should be able to assist them with their housing insecurity in a way that gets a person stable enough to have access to social mobility. And I come from a family that has gone from not having to having. I know many of my my counterparts who are first generation. I'm not first generation, but many of my counterparts who are have gone through the journey of going from not having to having, um, whatever having is for them. And then there are many people who are so focused on the the day-to-day struggle of just getting it, of just having enough to pay the bills, having enough to put food on the table, that it's the extras that they're missing. It's something like, we don't have additional funding for your child to own their own book. They can go to the library, but they can't sit in their bed necessarily if they didn't go to the library and know that that book is theirs. And so bringing some some smaller components that are really life-changing to people is important. And I guess in that way, yes, there's change that's taking place, as the title suggests. But really what's taking place from my perspective over the last year was teaching people how to be revolutionary in their understanding of their tribe, redefining those borders, and then opting into it and saying, I agree that the people that are in this tribe, as you've defined it for this month, that they, they deserve all of these things. You know, they, they deserve to, to live with this type of honor and dignity. They deserve to eat and they deserve to be clothed and they deserve to read and they deserve to be clean. Um, all of those things are important. And so that's the revolution as far as I'm concerned. And I, just as a short anecdote, a person that I've known through my entire life who has become incredibly accomplished and holds a C-suite role in a global multinational position and likely earns before bonuses well into the millions. I asked that person if they would make a micro donation. And of course they were happy to do so. Nothing too big, easy pocket change for this person. And I said to them, hey, as soon as uh, we hit the 30th, Check the website so you can see where your money went. And the person was a little offended by the notion that I needed to be checked up on. And they confronted me about it and said, you know, 
I don't give because I have some expectation of your behavior. I know that if I'm giving to you, I can afford to let it go and you can do with it what you need to do with it. I don't have to check up on you. And that's where that very first part we talked about, about the shift in perspective had to come in. There was a teaching moment here for me to be Mm -hmm. able to say to this person that I'd known my whole life, this isn't a question of my ethics or my veracity. It's not about you checking up on me. It's that I want you to know that when you give me X hundreds of dollars, that your X hundreds of dollars have had such a broad impact on such a wide number of people. I want you to be able to see that within 30 days of your giving that took place. And that person did go back and look and was quite surprised to know that this, for them, pocket change had actually turned into the quantity of food that was able to feed the number of people it was able to feed. They were very surprised by that. And I think that that's a big part of revolution as well, is making sure that those who have a lot understand those who have less and um, and what that reality really looks and feels like and how and how easy it is to level set for people. I mean, it is truly impactful. And thank you for sharing that anecdote because there are a couple of lessons in there, well, several really, of how that perspective could change. Because there's also the idea when people are giving that they tend to approach it thinking, well, I have to give to the person who has nothing. And just because you have some things doesn't mean that there aren't still needs. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's and you know, it, it's almost, a, 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 I'm trying to put it in the right context, but it can be a little dangerous sometimes to overlook the people who have some things because they do a really good job of hiding the things they don't have. It's true. And so that leads to all kinds of things like you mentioned, all the stress, all the traumas, anything else that might come up as a result of you trying to just make it, even though you don't have all the tools that would actually help you make it. And I'll tell you, I and think the- teachers are a really good example of that. Public mm-hmm. school teachers are, are salaried employees. There are folks who oftentimes do have student loan debt and through budget cuts that take place in cities and states, they lose the funding that they need to have the tools necessary to really have that kind of impact in a classroom, whether it's markers or glue or scissors or whatever it is that they need. This is a group of students that may have and a group of teachers that may have, but it's still an unmet need. And so hashtag small change would consider something like raising money to purchase the school supplies necessary for a school because the funding for those supplies has been cut. And and that's, to your point, an example of places where we're over possibly, where we may possibly be overlooking um, a need in a place where we believe someone is taken care of. Right. I mean... Uh, that's like a dangerous trail because I can I have my own already stated bias uh, about teachers and how <laughs> they're that they need that they don't get. But um, what the other thing that I just noted from the things that you were saying there is this: not only the idea of the people having some things but not other things and still having the need, but the idea that the money that you're giving can go a lot farther than you actually think. That the change you can create is bigger than you actually think. And this is the part where I know people are always saying, okay, well, not really sure what to give and who's going to have the greatest impact. 
Sometimes you just have to trust. But in, in your case, I've seen the receipts on the site. And worth people going to look at that, as you said, not because they need to verify that you know somebody from your org didn't run off with this money. It's no, it's more so so you can understand what giving is possible and what that impact looks like tangibly. The way that it's described, no, we went to their door. We handed it to them. This is what we actually gave them. It's not a vague CSR report. It's not a vague annual report. The details are there and it's very important for people, I think, to see that so they can contextualize all that's happening. So I'll step back from my little soapbox, but um, <laughs> it's, it's just, I encourage people, whether you give or not, I hope you do give, but I, I encourage you to go look at the site and see that. And maybe you can learn a little bit about how you describe your impact because this is, is it's a it's a way of approaching the work that I find to be really interesting. And I think it could change a lot of things for the, for the better. So I'll step off of my car and stand off. <laughs> and move on really. So I've struggled with this and you can tell I'm into it. I'm like searching and thinking about this. I'm the type of person I get excited about something and I'm ready to start it. I'm like, all right, what are we doing? I have struggled with this idea of impact and change making because I'm very drawn to it. I want to be somewhere near it, but I feel like I'm not being called for it to be my vocation to say, here's a lane in my life I've created for this. So for those of us who may feel like they're, they're in my pew in the church, <laughs> um, <laughs> do you have any advice for those of us who haven't maybe received a direct call to start an initiative or to, to be you know very involved in that, but want to support in some way? Is there something that we need to change in our perspective or some actions we might start as, you know, baby steps that you feel like might be helpful? Oh, yes. Oh, oh, absolutely. And callings are funny things. Um, People are called in, in every direction. I know people who've been called to create art and create music. And even when they didn't earn off of that, the impact that they had on the people around them from the creation of beautiful works of art is, is priceless. You know, there's no way to quantify it. Um, when you look right now at what's going on around the country, this is the time, you know, this is the same kind of time that we saw at the end of 1917, 1918 before the roaring twenties where the, where people were cooped up. And then there was this beautiful explosion of creativity and art and giving and sharing and communicating and writing. And, and that will take place with, with this, you know, 2020, 2021, and that same thing will likely happen now. So the calling for any given person could be something different. And, and I would never want any person who's listening to today or who'd ever communicated with me to think that because your calling doesn't look like service to someone else, that what you're doing isn't in service to the betterment of the people that are around you. If a person is trying to figure out what their impact is, the first thing is to realize that no calling has to be lifelong. It's not necessary that you say, I plan on being Mother Teresa. I will give up all vices and I will dedicate my life to becoming saintly. It's not necessary. Um, Hashtag small change has had months where we didn't run challenges. And we didn't run challenges because people couldn't, you know, they had, they had obligations, they had struggles and stresses and illnesses and deaths. And we needed to focus on those things before we could get back to helping others. Cause you know, like they say in the plane, secure your mask before you secure the mask of the people that are around you. 
And we realize that too. You know, we can't function if the people who are, who are serving for free to make this work aren't functioning at the highest level. Um, so when, when people are thinking, I want to make a change, but I don't want to make this a, I don't want to make this an occupation. This isn't a lifelong calling. Find an organization like ours. You know, you can Google, you can go to GoFundMe, you can, there are plenty of places that you can look and we can help you find them where you say, I have this idea or I have this thing that I think could happen. I think it could happen fairly quickly. And I would love it if we could do it through your organization. And people can take ownership over a single project that lasts for 30 days, that's exciting and fun to them. And they can take the leadership role in that, even if it's through small change. We happily hand the, the reins over to new people. And that can be a chance for you to see that the thing that you loved happened. And then you can go back to your life, your regular life as it exists. Um, some people have said to me, I work ridiculously long hours and I just can't be on social media. I can't come out for things like this. But on the day that you deliver, I will show up with a car or I will show up with a van and drive. And that's huge because that means we don't have to rent a van and we don't have to rent a car and we don't have to find gas money. Um, so the contributions, again, even though they can seem so small to the person who has them to give, they may be life altering for the organization. Um, one person contacted me and said, look, I don't want to really get terribly involved in the organization. I don't have time and I don't have inclination but I want to do something that's going to make a huge impact. Um, and that person made a, a, an, an operational contribution to us that secured a number of things that we needed to just get started. Um, we had another person who did the same thing when it came time for us to file for our 501c3 um, standing. They paid that couple hundred dollars that it cost for us to do that, which meant that we didn't have to find that funding or take that funding away from a, a in-kind donation that would go to someone else. So I realize I'm rambling a little bit, but the, I guess the takeaway at the end of all of that to wrap it in a tidy bow is um, go to any organization doing something that you find interesting and tell them what you want to do and do it. And that's it. There you go. There you go. Because there's always something, there's something you can do. Right. And so, all right. All right, I got enough inspiration to keep me going and not feel like you're not doing enough. What are you doing? Um, so, okay. So I want to shift a little bit because I've always been inspired uh, by learning about people and their stories. And I mean, it's a big part of what I do, helping people better define and, and share that story. Now, some of these details I know from you and over the last couple of years, I've picked up more, but I don't know all of them. So can we spend some time maybe learning a little bit about who Carla Renee is? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully I don't come off too corny. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not worried about that. What's your hometown? Let's start with that. Okay. I was born in Flint, Michigan and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I would if say go have, blue, but unfortunately it looks like we're going to be losing our head coach soon to the NFL. So I will hold my go blue comment for today. <laughs> okay. If you had to pick an intro song that played anytime you entered a room, what song would it be? So I'm an audiophile and I love music. Love it. Whole heart. 
there's never going to be just one song that plays because you never know what room you're stepping into. But (laughs) I do have a playlist that I put on shuffle every single morning when I wake up. And it's got a combination of what what one could call inspiring songs, (laughs) although... Um, they may not all necessarily be the most, let's say, positive or politically correct. Um, I would say I actually looked through this list in advance of today and the, the most appropriate would probably be David Bowie's Let's Dance. Strong bass intro right out the jump. And you know what song is playing as soon as it starts playing and your hype all the way through. Jesse Glynn's Hold My Hand, UGK's Take It Off, T.I.'s Ballin'. Like, there's so many, there's so many songs. They're all amazing. Um, They all get me hype. And I think if I were walking into a room, what I would really want was the music to hit the listener so hard that they all turned at the same time and went, wait, what? That's the goal. That's the, that's my, that's my intro music. The wait, what? There you go. And I, I'm glad you included some of those other ones that came up after Bowie. <laughs> all we need is what's the song? There's no no explanation needed. But I'm thankful for, for you sharing it because I'm like, there's there's a, there's a faceted version of Carlos. Well, if I gave the just the song title, I feel like I would get side eyes from many corners of the room. So <laughs> sometimes you need to disclaim before you actually put your song on the table. There you go. What is your favorite word? So you're asking questions about really all of my favorite things today. Um, I am not only an audiophile, I'm a bibliophile. Those are probably my two defining characteristics. Um, and the English language, really all languages have be, have just beautiful words. Sanguine and surreptitious. And, you know, there's so many good, there's just words that when you say them, your tongue feels happy and your face moves in the right way. But I'm really partial to simple words. I'm really quite partial to the words that are very small and have the biggest bang. And I would say it's a tie for me between the word um, love and the word peace. I promise you I'm not a hippie, even though both of those words might lead someone to believe that I am. The reason why I love them is because love is one of those things that is experienced differently by every single person. It's defined differently by every person. Um, it is it is both positive and it is negative. It is um, big and it is small. And for such a small word, for a four-letter word, to be able to do what the word love does, I think is, is awe-striking for me. Peace, I think, is the same. Um, It's something that can come from without and from within. It's something that can hit you and be taken away. It's um, also defined very differently by everyone, depending on their circumstances and where they sit in the world. For me, what peace of mind means will be completely different than someone in a war-torn country. Um, It will be completely different for a single parent. It will be completely different for a person who's ill. so I also find it to be one of the most powerful power words that exists, peace. And uh, despite my love of reading and saying every other word in the English language, including the bad ones, um, those I think are probably my two favorite. Okay. 
So now we have to flip it a little bit, though. Oh, no. So what is your least favorite word? How many people have said moist? No, none. Okay. <laughs> it's not, because I think if you didn't have moist cake, the world would be a terrible place. Um, <laughs> I think my least favorite word is can't, as in the shortened version of cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, I am comfortable with the word yes, and I'm comfortable with the word no. Both of them are clear delineators of position. Can't is something different. It's saying that there's an impossibility. And I very rarely accept that there's almost any circumstance on earth where there's truly an impossibility. It may not be that you can have things in the way you want them. Um, It may not be that you can have things in the way that you have envisioned them in your mind. But it doesn't mean that things can't be done. So um, I struggle with that that word when it's used in most contexts, um, and I push back on it as often as possible. I believe that. that. (laughs) So what sound do you love? Easy. Rain. That's a good one. It's rain. Um, I play my piano when it rains. I sing when it rains. I go walking when it rains. I stretch when it rains. I sleep when it rains. Rain is my favorite sound in the whole world. And what sound do you hate? Can people hate sounds? Oh, it's possible. What sound do you hate? I hate the sound of metal scratching against each other. I don't get bothered by the nails on the chalkboard thing, but metal, you drag a pipe along like a fence or something. Okay. Yeah. I have an answer, man. Okay. Um, it's something that was very new to me when I moved up north um, from living in the south for many years. I hate the sound of an adult cursing at a child. Mm. And I see it often. And I don't actually know as another adult what my responsibility or even authority is in a space like that to step in, to create comfort or to disrupt. Um, But it is, it's painful for me. I don't like it and um, I don't understand it. And so I I, I would say that's probably my least favorite sound. Mm -hmm. So we're going to jump towards work now. What profession other than your current one would you like to attempt? I never thought I would be doing this job. I never thought that I would be in education. My mother spent her career in education. Um, My sister is in her career in education. Um, Many other family members as well. I never thought I would be an educator. I never thought that I would be a lawyer. Um, As a young person, I expected that I would be a concert pianist. And was trying to take all the active steps that I could to go to conservatory or move to New York and go to Juilliard. I was really excited about that. And that, that did not happen. Um, and if I were to, if, if all things in the world were cleared out of my path and I could just pursue a profession agnostic of sort of skill and competency and, um, and, and licensure and credentialing, What I would really like to do is work in physics and help develop um, body armor and weaponry for our military. Mm. Um, I I have this idea in my mind of like skin weight armor 
that a person could wear and that they would not be injured if they had it on. And so I imagine that that would, I would probably do something in physics if I weren't a musician or a lawyer or a teacher or a nonprofit leader. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. What profession would you avoid completely? So this is going to seem funny when I answer it. Um, I don't ever (laughs) want to do a job where I am responsible for finance. Mm -hmm. I I don't like it. And it seems unusual to the people around me who don't know me very well. Um, because they would expect that the finance aspect, the rigidity and the uh, analytics of it would be enticing. Um, But the person who works with money for a living, their brain is very different than mine. And Mm -hmm. their understanding of the world and how it functions is often very different than mine. And I don't know that I could ever divorce my understanding of humanity from my understanding of how money really lives and works in the world. So my hope is just that one day I will marry a man who likes to talk about dollars and he can do it. (laughs) There you go. Well, that's the goal. (laughs) So I don't know, maybe this is a two for answer, but the question that comes up next is what motivates you to do the work you do now? Um, if I was answering that very honestly, I would say one of my primary motivators is fear and anxiety. Mm. I don't think people acknowledge that as much as they should. And so many of us operate with this quiet and sometimes very loud sense of fear and anxiety about um, who we are, what choices we've made, how we walk in the world, if we're doing it right. Um, If we're, if we're, if we're wasting our lives, if we're wasting our time, if we're making people proud, if we are ourselves proud. And some people only experience that, you know, maybe once a year or less. Uh, Some people are burdened by that feeling every day. And part of me offsetting my concerns about what kind of person I am in this world is to actively control um, what kind of person I am. And to make choices about where I work and what I build and who I build it for and who I give to that is really in line with my core sense of who I want to be as a person. Um, It would have taken very few changes in decision-making through my life for me to also be C-suite in someone's multi-global, national, blah, 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 blah. And... And, and to be dedicating my life to running something for money. But when I worked in the courtrooms, one of the reasons that I was there is I always wanted a person like me there. Mm-hmm. And in the Bronx, what I really want is a person like me in the Bronx. And so I go every place, career and personal, that is where I would really want a person like me to be. And that's that's how I get from place to place. I have to breathe on that one because that is a big, big part of more than I probably want to admit about why I'm doing what I do. And that, that idea of I want a person like me to be doing it, to be present, to be seen by others who need to see me. 
to help others. But I think, if I, yeah, it I comes back it. to that notion of humanity we were talking about, which is right. part of starting the perspective shift, part of getting people to see that they are a part of a community or a tribe is to begin to discuss with them their humanity. And, and um, in order to be highly accomplished, really to be very, very highly accomplished in this world, you have to be dedicated to focusing on you and your journey. Um, I don't know anybody who is re- is reaching super normal results in their field who doesn't spend most of their time focused on themselves and their field. And we need those people. And then you need other types of people who are like, I get it. You do what you do. You're the Beyonce of the finance world or whatever. But um, But there's got to be somebody here who's listening to the you know, the person speak very, very slowly in their English as a fourth language dialogue with you about their need and how you can help them. And that's got to, and, and, and the person who is as talented as the Beyonce of the finance world should also be there providing that level of skill and care to someone else. Still breathing on it. Part of my breathing space is uh, traveling. And sometimes it's traveling for work, but once I get in a plane and get into the sky, I kind of get into this space where I can really think it feels like on a much broader sense than ever. So I don't know. There's sometimes where I'm like, if people ask if you had a superpower, what would it be? For me, it would be fly. Yeah. I would love, there's a feeling I get from, from that. But the question I have for you is where's the last place you've traveled? I travel as much as I can. Um, COVID has meant this is the longest period of time I've ever been stateside without leaving. Um, also the longest period of time I've ever been New York based without leaving. And that's been, that's been hard. Um, Mm -hmm. I value that time with people that aren't like me in places that aren't familiar to me. The last place that I traveled was right before the world shut down in, I think either January or February, I took about two weeks and went to Hungary. Mm. Um, I'd never been to Budapest before and my favorite tattoo artist who I will comfortably say is in the top three fine line, black and gray artists in the world, um, is Hungarian. And I went to visit him in his home and to learn about, um, the, the history of Budapest and, what it looked like for it to be occupied during the war. What was the creation of ghettos like for people who were there? What was their experience? Um, you know, what was what was mass genocide like it, for a country that experienced it in the last seventy five years? What was that like for people? And what what is the common cultural consciousness that exists now as a result of that experience that took place with people's parents? or people themselves to have experienced it. Um, It was profound. It was very sad and quiet. Um, It it gave me a very different understanding of people that I've met that come from those regions. And I also got a beautiful tattoo out of the trip um, to be able to take with me and and to keep as part of that experience. But my hope would be that the world will open back up soon enough. And in a perfect world, I would have been in Croatia in August um, on a boat 
looking at beautiful open water. But now I think I would really like to go ahead and take some of the trips that I've been holding off on because I was didn't want to go alone or because I was worried about the time that it would take. I'd really like to get to the Maldives. Um, I'd like to go to Bali. Um, I would like to see more parts of Asia that I didn't get to see on my last trip. And I would like to return back to South America and spend more time between Argentina, Argentina and Colombia. And yeah, Argentina and Colombia. Man, those are all hot spots on my list. We <sighs> should go. Let's make a trip. Let's get the friends. <laughs> <laughs> we, should, we should. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, I'll say this um, first and, and firmly. A version of heaven exists for all of us, whether we acknowledge it or we don't. Um, it may be that we don't subscribe to the notion of religious heaven as has been presented in books, but something exists that is beautiful. And um, if at the end of my life, whenever that should happen, I should have an opportunity to meet with a, you know, a, a, a creator greater than me, um, who presumably would be heading up the shop in that their heaven. Um, I would feel like my life was fully complete if what I heard back was, um, I'm proud of you. You did what you could with what you had. Yeah. Um, I see, you know, I think for many people that I talk to about their religious beliefs of all types, there is a sense of maternalism or paternalism associated with their faith base. And I have been incredibly blessed to grow up in a village of strong, smart, loving, caring people of all types, including my mother and father and my grandparents. Um, and for me, I knew that I was always walking in the right path because I felt proud of me and because the pride I felt in who I was authentically was reflected back in their, in their experiences with me. And so I see the ultimate, you know, achievement in me ending my life authentically proud of who I am and having that reflected back by someone greater than me. Wow. I'm, I'm so, so glad to have, have you come and share your perspective because Every time I ask these set of questions, I get different answers. But this one in particular, um, it's 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 one of the most interesting because there's just a different take in terms of at some level people speak to a level of satisfaction, yeah, and what that looks like outside of everything else that's going on. And so I so appreciate you sharing that um, so openly and candidly. Now I want to bring us back down to the the, the plane of, of one quick point and ask you for the people who are still thinking about that tangible impact and how they can create it. Is there a strategy or tactic that you would tell them to do if they were setting out to create impact? Uh, what would you tell them to do that would make that easier, better, more effective for them? Strategy. So I would say, as with any endeavor, start by having a, a very clear understanding of who you are in the context. 
Um, I sat on a call the other day with a group of childhood friends and professionals talking about the value of becoming entrepreneurs. And I was the one voice in that room that said, I, I don't think that that would work for me because I don't um, have a sufficient enough personal time clock that says stop working. So when I work for myself, I imagine I would burn out faster than I would be successful. And that's just me having a clear understanding of what my strengths and weaknesses are in the context of working. Um, as someone is anticipating, you know, or thinking about wanting to make change, I would say start by figuring out who you are and then identify very clearly something you wish to change. And it can't be like world peace because that's not tangible. It's not measurable. Um, it has to be something concrete that you can do in a defined period of time through a defined set of activities. And then it's really a practical project management-based kind of exercise of I know who, what my skills and weaknesses are. I know what my, my problem set is. I know how long I want to spend on this problem set. I know what kind of action, tangible action steps I can bring to the problem's solution. And now I can think through who can help me get it done. And that, that problem or issue or question can be so seemingly impossible to, to fix. But what we can all do is take those tangible action steps. You know, someone can say, I want to make sure that all people of color um, are more financially literate. Yeah, it's, you know, that's a little bit fuzzy around the edges. But if you say, in my neighborhood of Harlem, I know that there are 10 schools, five after school programs, three churches, or whatever the numbers might be. And I want to make sure that the people in those specific areas achieve X level of financial literacy over where they are right now. And I think I can do that. You've made the impact that you wish to see in your world and you've sparked an entire new generation of people to do the same. And then you can scale. But for me, that question of how do you get involved is about taking a really deep breath and knowing that you cannot solve the world's ills. They didn't start in a day. They won't end in a day. They didn't start with a simple challenge. They won't end with a simple solution. Um, they were created in complex manners over the lifetime of humans. And, and what we can do is chip away at the things that we don't think are valuable for us and, and really share with other people what we're doing to chip away so they can be excited about finding something they can chip away at. Wow. So with that, we will close. I hope that everybody who's listening either uh, picks up an ax so they can start chipping or they can think about ways to support people like Carla Renee and small change so that they can chip for you. But ultimately there's, there's something that we can do and we should do. So with that, I'm going to close. Thank you for joining us, Carla Renee. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And this is one quick point.